Hi, everybody. My name is Vinash, and I am a member of Al-Anon. Hi, y'all. Thank you very much, my dear. That's Wren. She came with me from California. She's one of those little California thin little things. She'd never, she's never seen snow fall from the sky, so she uh, got pretty excited last night to see those two or three flakes. She eats tofu and garbanzo beans and... I actually don't know why I haul her around with me, Tatra. <laughs> oh, I want to thank the committee, of course, for inviting me to, to be here as your Al-Anon speaker, one of them. And I want to um, thank the members of AA for allowing me personally to be here. I, I don't know when I was new which helped me the most, if it was the Al-Anon meetings or the open AA meetings. Um, I was just like a sponge, so I, I just, I love, I love being here. I want to thank Ken for, I'm not sure what, he never called me and he didn't know who I was when I got here and he hadn't done nothing since I've been here. I don't know what I'm thanking him for. <laughs> just joking, he's been very sweet. My uh, other little chickadees here, Sandy, she's here from, um, well, I'm not sure where she's from. She's in Ardmore now, but she's kind of still in Cape Girard. And, uh, she, she drove over and with the threat of the snow and everything, so I'm delighted to see her. And special people. But just some old friends here. I love Linda and Scott and love being with them. And just, I'm having just a great time. I'm just all by myself. <laughs> just fun. I like being here. I've always liked alcoholics. I will always like alcoholics. I've had a bunch of them in my life. Three major ones and a bunch of minor ones in between. <laughs> I have this alcoholic gal that I run around with. She's, uh, she's just a lot of fun, and we have a good time. And We had some plans, and I called her a couple of weeks ago. I was at the airport, and I called her, and I said, uh, I have to break the plans. I can't be with you. My ex-husband has died, and I'm on the way to Texas. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. Which one was it? Like we have a whole plethora, you know, of alcoholics to choose from, I and mean, we confuse most people most time of who's what. I am not from California. I am from Texas. Um, I came into this magnificent fellowship of ours February the seventh of nineteen sixty nine in Lubbock, Texas. My home group was the Central Group. My home group now. I've moved to California, obviously, and it's the uh, stepped up group. We meet on Mondays and Thursday nights. My committee to open an AA meeting is Wednesday night at the Pacific Group. And unless I'm sick or out of town, you'll find me at all those places. Last week marked uh, 31 years in this fellowship for me. I'm still in awe of that. Um, I think it's, uh, Thank you for clapping, but I'm not sure for what. I mean, I just it just didn't... Uh, I'm here because I'm too scared to go anywhere else. I'm always at a loss of words to, um, always, I, I, I get nervous doing this. I don't think it ever gets easy. And I have so much to say and sometimes I get so tied up in my own self that I can't, uh, I can't tell you how much I love you and how much I care about you and, and what you mean to me. 
the last three years have just been a roller coaster ride and a down the pits and hell and back as far as I'm concerned. So I'm just now coming out of a long dark hall they talk about and and I just I'm just glad to be here. Just truly. I was born in Lubbock, Texas, Lubbock County. I had three brothers and myself and my mom and daddy, Southern Baptist. Many of y'all I don't you know it's still really nice when you don't have to explain some Southern Baptist to anybody. Um, you pretty well know what the my home life was like. When I was a young girl, my oldest brother broke his neck in a swimming accident on a family vacation, and it changed all of our lives. Um, my daddy lost everything. Uh, he lost his, he had a furniture business, and he lost that, and he lost uh, dignity. They put in the newspaper that father swallows pride and asks for help, and they were taking up funds to help my dad literally feed us and, and clothe us and help with my brother's hospital expenses and and uh, I tell you this simply because I, it's put me in a mindset that I kept until I got in this program that I was beneath most everybody. They put in the paper that we were, you know, it was on the front page that we were beneath most people. And I came out of uh, just poverty almost. It just got really, really bad in my house. And I found the streets. I loved being out in the streets. Um, my house was not a happy house. My mom and dad fought all the time and it was tents there and, and my brother when he finally did come from home from the hospital was uh, uh, he smelled bad not not because he wanted to he just did you know the rotting flesh of the body and then pack it with medicine and it was it was just a terrible place and it just stressed and strained so I stand out in the streets with the older girls like the 9, 10, 11 year olds and, and uh, they found some magazines one time. We read magazines on top of the garage, you know, just just stuff, just out there, just staying out till they'd have to call me to get me to come in the house. And I didn't like my house. I didn't like anything about it. I didn't like my folks. I didn't like nothing, just nothing. And I grew up very quiet, very shy, just uh, out on top of the garage, just hanging out with older girls. And one of these older girls, when I got about... I guess 17 or 18 told me about a place that she had been that was very exciting and she wanted to sneak me into and it was called a West Texas Honky Tonk. And when I got out there, I was terrified. I mean, really terrified because I knew I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. If I got caught, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, when you pulled up in the parking lot, there was this it was a big, huge arrow pointing down, and it flashed off and on, on, you know, pointing down. And the excitement I knew when that thing was flashing was as soon as I walked in that door, something was going to happen. And it did. I walked in to my first honky-tonk, and I was just as hooked as I've heard alcoholics talk about when Scott was talking about it this morning, when it happens. Well, it happened to me when I walked into that honky-tonk because it was exciting. Uh, the band was very, very loud and uh, a lot of commotion going on and loud laughter. And there was a big old ball in the middle of this dance floor, you know, with little teeny tiny glass little squares. And some of the glass squares had fallen out. And there was a blue light and a green light and a red and a yellow, I think. And as it went, the different lights hit it. And it was just, I was fascinated by that light, all this stuff happening. 
we went over and sat down on this side of the room and, and watched to see what was happening. And I'm a quick study. I learned what you do and how you're supposed to do it. And all the guys were on this side of the room where the bar was. And they would sit on the bar stools and and drink and talk and visit and carry on. And about 11-ish, they'd get off the bar stools and come over to this side of the room and start uh, asking the girls to dance. And I learned how to dance real quick. Uh, that didn't take long. And then I learned some fascinating things that, had, that just changed my life, literally. When you dance, a man puts his arms around you and he holds you very close and very tight. And you have another human being that you're being physical with. Now, I had not had this experience that I could recall. Um, my parents were absolutely wonderful parents, but they were in this stress and this strain, and they didn't, I'm sure like most of your parents, they didn't hug me and tuck me in at night and rock me and all that stuff. They just were doing what they could do to survive. And so I didn't have any physical contact with anybody. There was no hugs. I don't ever remember being hugged. Came out in inventory, I was never hugged until I got out that honky-tonk. I take that back. This one old woman <laughs> hugged me one time. She was from the church. They brought a bunch of food over to my mama. Big sacks of food. And she came in and I was a little bee thing. And she was a, you know, a heavyset woman. Little blue lips and that blue hair. Thin, you know. And she pulled me in and hugged me. And she told me that Jesus loved me. And my face was like this right here. And it's like... And she was just, I couldn't breathe. And that's the only thing I could think of, these big, huge boobs and my nose in between them. And, and I couldn't breathe. And um, she was telling me that. And I remember that my daddy walked out in the backyard about that time because he, and he had this funny look, you know, this distraught look on his face. My mother was crying and sat down. Now I know that they were crying because they were grateful. But at the time, I just thought it had something to do with Jesus and fat women with big boobs and it just wasn't anything that I wanted anything to do with I mean just literally and I just backed off from that so when they you start dancing and they, they're doing this hugging it's marvelous I mean it is marvelous it was just oh, I loved it I just absolutely loved it and I learned that a lot of fast decisions had to be made at closing time that you looked at those cowboys, I'll tell you, I still love them today. I was looking at old Malcolm. He's got on tight jeans and boots. I'm telling you, it's still, my heart just still. Tight jeans and, and those little butts, boots and the hat, just, I mean, well, I just became a slut puppy hoe, you know. <laughs> what can I say? And I heard uh, one of... You know, I've heard a lot around here from this podium that has taught me so much from the alcoholics. And the alcoholics are talking about the isms from alcoholism. Uh, a friend of mine said one time he chaired this discussion meeting. They went around the room and they was talking about what, what makes an alcoholic? What, what's the characteristics of it? What makes this personality up? And they all went around the room and shared. And everybody talked about something. And when it got back to him, he said, isn't it interesting that nobody mentioned alcohol? Nobody said one word about alcohol. They were talking about the fears, the, the low self-esteem, and all that stuff. So I have discovered from my grand sponsor that there are Al-Anon-isms and that I have majority of them.
And one of them is uh, addicted to excitement, which when I walked into that honk stock, I was very addicted. Uh, no self-worth, very low self-esteem, manipulator, controller, on and on and on. And I heard an alcoholic talking about what the alcohol did for him and his low self-worth and, and how it changed his life. He went, of course, to a bar and drank, and he was, like I was, uh, quiet, shy, didn't know how any social graces at all. And that alcohol hits his stomach, come back up, hit his arms, and they grew, and, you know, his face grew, and he was handsome all of a sudden, and just, <laughs> he was just a man. He could just go out and do anything as a man, and just changed his life. And when he was talking about that, I really identified in, in a little different way, because I knew, I knew how he felt about the coming up. I, I remember, I mean, I can see the guy. I was dancing. It's the last dance. You know, it's the last dance, the last call for alcohol, and everything gets real busy. They're playing Sleepwalk, which is an instrumental, which is just out of this world. It just sends you to heaven and back. It's just the most exquisite music in the world. And we're dancing, and I mean, we are clutched, you know. I mean, you couldn't put a hair in between us. And he's nibbling right here in this ear. And he says to me, Sugar, I need you. Man, whoa! I am woman. I mean, these boobs came out, this nose flipped up, I became five foot two, blonde. You know, I was just, I just changed right in front of your very eyes. And it was, I was a different human being. I was complete, I was full, I was marvelous. Because this man needed me. And it was a, a wonderful feeling. So I took him home. Showed him all the delights that the big girls had told me about. And the next day he escapes. <laughs> and it comes next weekend and um, I'm, in, of course, embarrassed and ashamed of myself. I know I'm going to hell. Grandma said I was and I knew I was. But next weekend, the big girls got talking about going back out to Honk Tonk, so I went. And we did the same thing. I went over here, and the guys went over there, and about 11-ish, they start kind of slipping off the stool and coming over and dancing, and you pick the hem of the night that you really want to spend the time with and manu manipulate and maneuver yourself to the last dance. You're standing right in front of him, so he kind of has to ask you to dance. And, and uh, same thing, sleepwalk, whispering, and I go home, and the next day it disappears, and and then I hear these alcoholics talking about how bad they begin to feel about themselves. And, and I did, too. Because, see, I, every time I did that, I, I just, part of my soul and part of my dignity, I just threw away. I used to think I was such a victim until I inventoried this stuff. And I've heard, like we've all heard, there are no victims, just volunteers in this thing. And little by little, I just gave everything, every dream, every hope I ever had of being a lady. I always wanted to be just a lady. I wanted to have two two point four kids or whatever in a in a, a beautiful house with a white picket fence, and I wanted to have a big shaggy dog, and I wanted to have a um, back then this was a big deal a station wagon with wood on the side of it. You don't see those anymore, but that was a dream of mine. I used to go see Doris Day and Rock Hudson. <laughs> and, uh, I thought they were the perfect couple. And all those dreams were just shattered, and I, I was ashamed of myself. 
And the more I did this, and the more I would say, this this Friday night, I'm just going to go out there and dance. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to dance. And then I'm coming home. And that didn't happen. And then I'd say the next weekend, well, I'm just not going to go and stay. I'm just, you know, you know, like I've heard many alcoholics say, I'm just going to go have two beers. And I got so full of shame and guilt that I eventually started staying away from all the people that I knew and got new friends. I started going to a place called the Bloody Bucket. And it was just about like it sounds. Uh, and the people I met there weren't the, the finest of society. But I felt better then. And I met my first major alcoholic there. Um, and he was a gambler and a bootlegger and uh, had money. And I had not seen money. And this man had money and he was very, um, when he was drinking, very generous with it. And it just really got my attention. I went down and bought my first uh, outfit from a store, skirt and sweater that matched. I mean, they matched. And some of you women know what I'm talking about when you have hand-me-downs and it was just incredible. I got had my first bottle of perfume. I just nearly asphyxiated everybody around me. I was just so thrilled. And just, I just can't tell you how I felt. It was just marvelous. I was on top of the world. And go back out there and honk tonk with him and throw up myself on, or he'd throw up on my new sweater or skirt. And that dream was, you know, there's always something just as soon as, as soon as, as soon as it's going to be all right for me. And it never quite got there. I became pregnant by this man, not married. And started living with him. He was taking care of me. When I had my daughter, he asked both of us to leave, that he was not ready to to have a family. One of my isms is, do not abandon me. Now, you can treat me any way you want to. I mean, you can humiliate me. You can lie to me. You can cheat on me. You can do anything to me. I will. I will accept it. I will play like I want, but I will because I have such a fear of abandonment. Don't. Don't leave me. Because if you leave me, there's not going to be anything or anybody else. And if you leave me, this hole will come in my chest and there won't be anything to fill it up. I won't be able to sleep. I won't be able to eat. But just don't leave me. And he did that to me. He left me. He abandoned me. My other ism shot up, which is called vengefulness. <laughs> I never, I don't, I still don't like that word. I don't consider it being vengeful. I consider it, I am showing you exactly how deep you have hurt me by whatever thing I choose to punish you with. He had a man across town, another honky-tonk, but they were enemies. And I chose to manipulate myself with this other man and got him drunk. And I want you to hear this. I really fed him more alcohol than he was normally used to drinking so I could manipulate him to go over the bloody bucket because they didn't, it's like, y'all know now, like the gangs in the hood, you don't go over to somebody else's hood. Well, you just didn't do that. You didn't go to the bloody bucket. You stayed over there, and he said over there, well, I finagled that deal because I really wanted to hurt him. That gambler had, had thrown me out. He'd thrown me away. He'd abandoned me, and I was mean-spirited, and I wanted to hurt him. And I knew being seen with this guy would really hurt him, and it would embarrass him. And that's exactly what I wanted to do, and that's what I did. And in and, and a few days, he took a shotgun and blew this man's head off. Now, I never expected that to happen. 
I just didn't. I, that's stuff that just happens in the movies or you read in books. It's not real. But it was very real. And this young man at, I don't know how old he was, 23, 24, died. And uh, my gambler went to, eventually went to prison. And I'll tell you, this just about did my folks in. My folks were just good people, you know. They're just good, hardworking people. They never done anything or bothered anybody. They were just good people. And, and I really run them through the ringer. And my mama said to me when this happened, she said, I don't want you coming over here anymore. I just don't want our neighbors seeing you come in and out. And if anybody asks you, you just tell them you're not our daughter. And I said, okay, mama. I really, I really understood. I mean, I just understood. And she belonged to this Rebecca Lodge, and it was a really big deal for her. And she had been uh, nominated this big state officer. And when they found out what I did, they asked her to step down. They didn't want her in that position because of what I had done. And so it's really had hurt my mother. So I have this little girl that I absolutely do not know what to do with. I am so full of all this um, shame and guilt and remorse and, God, what am I going to do? What I decided to do, I had to clean my act up. So I went across town and went to where the cowboys were. I figured if I got a cowboy, that would make me feel better because they were, you know, it was about the time people were... Uh, being disrespectful to the flag and, you know, tearing up their draft cards and all that stuff. And cowboys were decent, and they didn't do that kind of stuff. So I thought, I'll go where decency is. So I went over the rodeo grounds and got a cowboy. And absolutely, there was no difference in the two. Um, I say one wore a pistol, one wore a cowboy hat, and that was the only difference in them. Um, they were both... Just out there, alcoholics. Just out there. You know, I've always liked the ones that are just bigger in life. I just, I just hang on to that. And they were out there kind of guys. And, and I just hung on to them and got my identity from them and, and just loved it. And I got hooked up with this cowboy. And we were at the honky-tonk. And I don't know what was fussing about, but he was poking me in the chest. And I got a great big uh, quart empty beer bottle, those great big brown ones that they used to have. And busted him upside the head took him down to his knees, and I ran outside and was trying to get in my car, and he caught me. And he said, you know, I think you just knocked some sense in me. I think we should get married. <laughs> now, did y'all hear that? Married. Married. Now, I never, it just never occurred to me to be married. I didn't think it ever would. That was for decent people. And I was so thrilled that, that I'll guarantee you his shirt didn't hit his butt till he was married to me. We got married, and I was going to make sure that this was going to be a fine thing for him. I got him up, um, cooked him huge breakfast, pork chops and eggs and hash browns and homemade biscuits and gravy and jelly and, you know, best of coffee. And I went and bought oranges and, you know, made him fresh orange juice and sent him off to work. And I'd make him a sandwich and get wax paper and write a little note in there, something really cute so that he could think about me during the day, some, something nice I was going to do for him that night, and I'd stick it in the middle of his sandwich so when he was eating, the boys would see him, you know, pull it out. And he'd come home, his bath would be drawn, and I'd have chicken fried steak and mashed taters and gravy and pecan pie and yams waiting on him. I mean, I, I was going to be the wife, and I was and he was, and it was fantastic for the first six days. And then Charlie came by, and uh, everybody's got a Charlie, I think. And they went out. That's so going to be right back. And 
I found my position at the window and uh, stayed there for several years. And uh, I had a little boy. I thought that might make us more cohesive, and it didn't. I drank, and I went out to bars with him, and I had a good time out there for a long, long time. And then it stopped being fun, and I started staying home. I just didn't want to go out there. Uh, the last time I went out there, I found what I was afraid of. I kicked over tables and threw chairs, and they threw me out of the bar. Left him in there and threw me out. And so I decided that probably wasn't the thing I wanted to do anymore. So I started staying home, and he was getting more violent, and I was getting quieter, and he was drinking more, and I was getting quieter and more violent with my children. I kept them in the back room, and everything was just, everything depended on him. When he left, when he come back, you know, I could hear his pickup 22 miles down the road. And it depended on how he got out of that pickup, how I was. It depended on how he got out of that pickup. If the beer cans fell out, oops. If they didn't, well, it's maybe. And if they fell out, then I got into gear. I knew what to do. Get the kids, put them in the back room, shut the door. Y'all stall, don't come in. Go in here, be real quiet. Just, you know, hunker down. Hope everything's quiet. Hope he's only drinking beer. If he gets into whiskey, it's going to be a hard time tonight. If it's just beer, maybe we, maybe we can just make it through it. And Lord, Lord, it just got worse and worse. I used to think that he beat me up. And he did. But three-fourths of it I caused. And I didn't know that till I was told, why don't you keep your mouth shut? And it was like, whoa, what a concept. We had phys- a lot of physical fights. One Thursday, I had two black eyes and a busted lip, and I knew I could not do it one more time. I was, I was through. There's just no way. He, he worked out of town at the time, and then he was going to be back the next morning, and I knew I just couldn't do it. So I called in the Yellow Pages and, and looked up Alcoholics Anonymous and talked to a man, and he gave me a number, and I called and went up to this woman's house, and she talked to me, and come find out she was a sober member of AA. Her husband came in. He was a sober member of AA, and they talked to me at length and, and took me to my first meeting. And it's been said over and over and over. I'll, I'll never forget my first meeting either. You know, I walked in that building, and there was two alcoholics leaning up against a cigarette machine that glows. You remember how they used to put your money in and pull this thing out and it fall down this little silver tray? But they all glowed, and uh, they were had this funny glow on their face and they were laughing and I I was just mesmerized I hadn't heard laughter in such a long long time I, I just hadn't and it was just quiet at my house and I kept the kids quiet and it was just everybody be quiet be still just don't make any waves and it was a, it was an unhappy place and here we here I was in this laughter and this fun in this seemingly different place that I've ever seen before and I went in and sat down and I don't remember a thing that they said I just knew how I felt. I felt somehow that there might be some hope. Maybe there's some hope. And I can't tell you what gave that to me the first few minutes because I have no idea. I kept coming back and kept coming back. And I've been there, it seems as if, two or three months. My sponsor and I don't really recall. But I, I used to slip out just as soon as they said the amen because I was so frightened of anybody knowing who I was and where I came from. And she caught me. There was two doors, and one lady went this room, and one the other went to this one, and they caught me so that I couldn't escape. And um, my sponsor caught me at the door, and she started talking to me. And she said some things only she could say and only I could hear. I just believe in divine appointments. I think God has an, the right person for the right 
time set long before I ever know about it. And that was what was going on at this night. I had a divine appointment with this woman, and she, somehow or another, shortly thereafter, after that, I asked her to be my sponsor. And she bought me a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a one-day-at-a-time book, and we had some other literature that's not conference-approved now, but that's what we studied. She had me read that book. We read that book together to understand what the disease of alcoholism was. And she had me go to open-A meetings so I could hear sober alcoholics talk. And they were talking about what they used to be like, which was going on in my living room the night before. So it was really uh, amazing to me. And I just, I, I knew that this is where I needed to be. I had no God, nor did I want a God. I thought, well, if there really is one, I'm in deep trouble. She told me amazing things about that. I think we agnostics in the big book of Alcoholics Psalms changed my life, saved my life. I, I literally believe that. I take the people I sponsor every year. Now I'm up in California. We go up to Big Bear and rent a house, all of us, and we have a big book study all weekend. I like to introduce them to all that. And when we get to the that chapter, we can hardly get through the rest of the book because it's just so filled with so much, so much magnificent things. And I remember she said to me, but no, it's like this. If you're in the basement of a three-story building and God's on the roof, you don't have to work your way out of the basement up to the roof where he is. He will come down to the basement and get you. And that just was so new to me. I had no earthly idea. Anyway, she took me through the steps of this program. It's been talked about over and over this weekend. And those steps led me to my own experience with God and, and started helping me understand the disease of alcoholism, start with my own disease, figuring out what that was looking at my children different, and becoming a different human being. It was really incredible. After I'd been here a year, this cowboy decided he would come in and see what it was all about. He was really, he was fighting me about going to these meetings. I finally told him where I was going and why, and he was really fighting me with this. And he came after I'd been here a year and stayed sober six months, and then he went back out because he wasn't really, really an alcoholic. I continued coming to meetings and living with this man for the next six years. One of the main reasons is some of y'all knew Elsa Chamberlain. She told me one time, she said, are you ready to leave him and some other woman come get him? I thought, well, Lord, no, that cute little cowboy, if I'm going to go through all this stuff, I want the good stuff. So I kept hanging around for the good stuff, and it just didn't happen. I was in that as soon as syndrome. Well, as soon as I get enough money, I'll leave him. Well, as soon as the kids get out of school, I'll leave him. As soon as I get some money saved, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as. And I can no more tell you why I didn't than an alcoholic can tell you why they can drink. I don't know. I could not leave. I had to be there for whatever reason. The minute I walked into this fellowship, the violence stopped. One of the guys told me to keep my mouth shut, and, and I did that. And for whatever reason, the violence stopped. After I'd been here and, and did this for seven years, he came in one night, and I knew he was in a blackout. I knew he was full of rage. He was just out of it. And he started beating me up. I fell over the foot of the bed, and my, just as my face hit the floor and bounced back up, I looked in, up, and then standing in the door was my two children, my daughter and my little son. And they were just, my little son was just dancing and just screaming, Daddy, please don't hit her anymore. Please don't hit her anymore. And I looked at their faces. There was nothing but stark terror on their faces and I saw them for the first time you know the big book talks about that moment of clarity I saw my kids for the first time and I thought my god they're hurting because before that I just put them in the bedroom and shut the door and I assumed they didn't know nothing 
Isn't that dumb? But I assumed they knew nothing because I had them in the, in the room with the door shut. This denial, one of our isms, is so incredible, I just I can't believe it. What we cannot see and hear and do if we don't <laughs> think about my old friend, Wren. Her husband's still drinking. He's just one of those cute little alcoholics. I just want to take him in my lap and rock him. He's just so cute. And he took us to the airport uh, yesterday morning. We did have plan B uh, in case he didn't show. But And he had to get up at 4 a.m. And... Uh, 4 a.m. ain't much long, you know, from the last drink. And, man, I mean, he had that smell. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And I was just about to pass out, and I was trying to roll the window down and sniff, and she never smelled it. She said, did he smell? She cannot smell that vodka. Boy, I can smell it, you know, 90 yards away. And it's like, I didn't smell it. You can't see, smell, or hear till you can see, smell, and hear. You just can't. And I did not know those kids were in pain. I had no idea. And I, I got up and got out. We escaped, and I, I, was, I surrendered. Uh, I had no education. I'm a high school dropout. How was I going to support these two children? Well, when you're ready, God just takes over. I mean, he's not he's such a, a gentleman, I was told. He will lead me to my own devices until I'm tired of them, and then I'll give it up, and then if I'm this bloody pulp, then God will take over, not before. So I've always got a better plan, you know. And so I got into nursing school uh, with the help of the group with people in, in AA and, and the church that I started going to. My way was paid to school. Uh, I had a bank account that, the, that several of the guys put together for me, and one miracle after another came. I mean, just one miracle after I just can't tell you how much. It just There's not enough time. I, I graduated from nursing school, and I was given the class response. They asked me to do it, and I'm not a speaker. I got up and gave a class response. It was so incredible. And as I was doing that, right here in the front was all my bunch, you know, all my AA bunch and my friends and all of them had come. And, and right in the middle of them was my mother and my father. And I looked down. I was thanking the family and friends, and, and my dad was crying. And my mother had this look of joy on her face. And, and I, I remember it so distinctly because at that moment, at that very moment, I knew that my mother and my father, father were not ashamed of me anymore by the look on their faces and he was punching the neighbor who'd come with him said that's my kid up there i could read his lips and that only happened because you told me how to make amends how to live differently and go to them and tell them i was sorry and uh, you know it was nice to say i'm sorry but that didn't cut it you know i had to had to show them uh, new actions and they finally began to trust me again i i left this cowboy and divorced him and was on my own and started working as a nurse, and I was doing just well, just great. It was just wonderful. My daughter became a teenager, and all of a sudden she started doing very weird things and lying to me, and I was catching her. And You know, they say here you cannot say an alcoholic's an alcoholic. They have to say it themselves. But also have heard here if they waddle like a duck and quack like a duck, chances are they're a duck. And my daughter was waddling and quacking, and we were having a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. She was sneaking out windows. I'd catch her down the road in the middle of the night. And, and uh, finally, I started sniffing and smelling a little bit. And, and we got into a lot of trouble. She and I did. I'll tell you, I can handle a him, but I can't handle my kids. That's one of the hardest things in the world because, you see, I'm their mother. And they will do as I say. And she never did do it. still doesn't do as I say. And uh, 
So the stress, the strain, I just got, she just hated me and I just hated her. We just could not even hardly be civil. And she was drunk and uh, got in trouble one night and I threw out of the house. I said, I can't do this anymore. You're just going to have to go do what you have to do. I cannot do it. She was 16 at the time. And she was gone for about a month and I got a call in the middle of the night that she was um, raped uh, outside of a honky-tonk. And I went and got her and brought her home and we did all sorts of things and got her back in school tried to put her life together and she graduated and went off to college and I thought well this is going to be great and she dropped out of college and you know started waddling again and quacking again you know and I just had to let her be I totally had to let her be and then my son was 11 and they called me at school one day and uh, I mean from school one day and they found him in a closet he'd been sniffing Pam through a paper towel holder, for God's sakes. And this had been going on quite some time, I finally figured out, because his little neighbor boy that he ran around with, he was always coming over and asking if his mother could borrow some Pam. I thought, my God, this woman's a real cook, and she must be really broke. She keeps borrowing my Pam. And, I mean, he was 11. And I went to school and got him, took him to the doctor, and said, you know, this is what happened and was on our way back home and I said why in the world did you do this and I have a long time in the Al-Anon program and I'm asking this kid why did you do this <laughs> he said to me mama I like the way it makes me feel and I knew I was in trouble I knew he was in trouble so I got busy and I decided to put him in a boys ranch and try to help him uh, avoid alcoholism <laughs> Let's do a geographical here on this kid. Uh, he's still drinking. Father found out about it and uh, came and kidnapped him and took him away. And I didn't know where he was. And we had the sheriff and we was fixing to put his face on a milk bottle, I'll tell you. And my son called me one afternoon. He said, Mother, I'm, I'm okay. I'm with my dad and I want to stay there. And just hung up. And I just was devastated. You know, after all I had done for these children. <laughs> and they were siding with him. That's what I thought. Take it side. And my son's uh, 32 today, and he hadn't lived with me since. He was with his father, and he lived through, he's lived through a hell that I don't know all about, and I don't want to know. Um, the bits I do are, can really rip my heart. I regret deeply my son not uh, growing up with me. I regret it deeply. We were around the table one day talking, and was talking about going through airports, and he said, yeah, every time I go through, the beeper goes off because of this bullet in my leg. <laughs> thought what bullet in his leg I said you know what I don't even want to hear this story I still don't know the story still don't want to he he and his father had a great bond and yet they hated each other you know and his dad never uh, I mean they just lived together and and uh, my son started drinking and has been drinking ever since too there I was, both my kids gone, and, and this man from California came to this convention that I was at. And his name was Jim Shaw, and he was just a, an out-there alcoholic. I mean, he was just out there, handsome and a deep voice and wore a lot of diamonds. and All the above caught my attention, and we started dating and have a long-distance romance. And he uh, asked me to move out to California and uh, see if we couldn't put something together. And I said, that would be great. And I quit my job, got rid of all my stuff, and 
had it all packed in a U-Haul trailer, and, and he called me and said that he had changed. No, excuse me. He came back to town, and he was in town, and called me right before I was to leave, and he said, uh, I can't do this. And he came over and uh, gave me some money. His sponsor made him fly back from California to see me in person. Gave me this money and uh, said, I'm sorry. I have gotten in touch with my feelings. Crap, don't you ever say that to me. you always in touch with your feelings. I'll tell you about some feelings that can be touched. Let me tell you. <laughs> and what I know now is he was terrified. Alcoholic men, and I'm sorry if it offends you guys. I love y'all desperately. But y'all are such cowards. I mean, you're cowards. <laughs> so I, I, and I really didn't get mad at him. I got so mad at God. God, why would you let me see this and experience this and have all these hopes and dreams and yank it away from me? I think that's the meanest trick that anybody could play on anybody. And by God, God... I've done everything you've asked here. I've cleaned your dirty dishes and set up your stupid chairs and made your coffee and called people and made commitments and listened to these whiners talk to me at 2 a.m. I've done it all. And these other people get up and they're doing this stuff and they've gotten married and now he owns his own company. Just bought the... Stones. You know, it's all that... I don't want to hear your spiritual crap I don't we're all brainwashed here you're all a bunch of idiots and I'm not hanging out with you I am out of here I fired everybody else sponsored I'm through I'm gone screw all of you so I took off went home I think the next night there was a knock on my door and I went to the door and here's all these people I sponsored standing on my porch I said what do y'all want well, we're going to have a meeting. And they just literally shoved me aside, came in, put the coffee pot on, had their cookies. And I, went, I said, well, y'all meet, but I'm going to bed. I slammed my door and <laughs> put my ear up there to see what they were saying. <laughs> and the topic of the meeting was, what did she tell you to do when the bottom of your world fell out? And I listened to them as they all went around and, and shared and I just eventually opened the door and sat down. They didn't say anything to me. I just sat down, listened to them. And I'll tell you, it took me a long time to get back, a long time. I had some old ideas crop up. I thought, if I can't get at God and punish him, I'll punish him through some of the people that he loves. And there were some new people, uh, new men trying to get sober in AA. And I went after them like an old slut puppy hoe. And I hurt I hurt several people, and I tell you, I, would, I wouldn't tell you all that, except my sponsor makes me, <laughs> because I regret it deeply. This is not a place to 13th step, and my sponsor made me go tell her husband, who was my hero of heroes of heroes of heroes, and I begged her for me not to have to tell him, and she said, you're going to have to go tell him. And I went and told um, Jack what I had been doing. And boy, he had nothing but total disdain on his face. And he adored me. He loved me. He said, doll girl, we don't do that here. These are people's lives. And we don't mess with people's lives. Yours included. And I just felt terrible. I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He said, you're going to change your actions. And you're going to ask God to forgive you. And I went to those men, the ones that I could, and made amends. 
And then I just started trudging. I mean, I'm telling you, trudging. There was no joy. I knew that I had done wrong. And I knew that I had betrayed this God because my sponsor, when I was talking to her, I said, I feel like God's betrayed me. And she said, do you think you betrayed him? And I knew that I had. And I thought, if you'll just let me come here and sit in your meetings and, and please let me make the coffee. Please let me put the chairs up. Please let me be a part of because I should have been asked to leave, literally. I should have. My actions were just were terrible. And some of them wanted me to leave. Well, trust me. Some of them would have liked to left me, let me go. And some of them said, no, you stay here and this, you have no other place to go. And, and I trudged a hard path. And I can remember leaving the conference and driving down on a Sunday afternoon and saying, God, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you can hear me. But if you'll just let me be of service, I won't ask you for anything else because I've just realized I've already had everything that everybody needs. I've been loved. I've had homes. I've had cars. I've had friends. I've had family. I've had children. I've had marriages. I've already had everything that most people ask for, and I have destroyed most of them out of my own self-will. And if you'll just let me be here, I'll just be your servant, your service, whatever you need. I went home that night, and one of the guys had said, Make it a list of everything you would like. Just make a list and put it in your big book. So I made this list and put it in that big book, and I turned the light out. And that, to me, that's the loneliest time in this whole wide world, and sometimes even today. Some of the loneliest times I've ever experienced is when I turn that light out and then turn over in bed all by myself. Even if my husband's beside me sometimes, that's the loneliest time because there's nothing between me and me. It's just me laying there. And I turned that light out and I was laying there. And this voice, I assume it's a voice because it wasn't, it wasn't my thought, said, what one thing on that list do you think would make you happy? And I couldn't answer that. There was no answer. I was just stunned. And I thought, if I can just come and be of service, I'm going to be all right. I could just feel it, and I was. I was just of service. And two years later, not all this happened in a, in a matter of time. Two years later, Jim came back in my life, and we were at a convention. He came up and started talking to me, and I had a covey of people around me trying to protect me from him, you know. <laughs> and uh, we started seeing each other again and eventually did get married. And I assumed it was going to be like, I see you. You know, I see y'all come in and you're happy and you're smiling and just the sweetest couple and seeing you behind podiums saying these marvelous things, what a wonderful marriage you have and how great it is. And I was told, you don't know what goes on in the car before they get here or after they go home. And I learned that. <laughs> Boy, I thought because he was an AA and I was an Elmo, everything's going to be fine. And it was not so. We fought and scratched and carried on and... This will tell you pretty much the story of my marriage. He said, uh, one Sunday I was watching television, and he was in the kitchen frying up something. And I was deeply engrossed in this movie, and all of a sudden he was at, right by my chair, hands on his hips in my position. And he said to me, Benoit, you know, from time to time you say that alcoholism can rear its ugly head. He was missy. I want you to know that from time to time, Alanonism rears its ugly head. I wonder what he was thinking when he was in there in the kitchen. What brought that to his head? 
It was probably something I said two weeks ago because I never would know. He would just pop up with this stuff. And I'm defending myself. And I don't know what I'm defending because I'm not sure where he's coming from. And we did that over and over and over and over. One of the girls I sponsored, she said this other day. I just, I just cracked up. She's fairly new. And she said she was in the kitchen and she dropped this tea pitcher, this glass tea pitcher, and it busted all pieces. And her husband was in the living room. He said, it's not my fault. <laughs> because sobriety and Al-Anon being in recovery sometimes just clashes like crazy. And I had to learn that. And we had to learn how to be married. And it was hard and it was tough. And we took a long route to get there. He had a lot of money when I married him, and I loved it, and we had a lot of fun with that. And then he went bust in the all bust of 82 or 84, and uh, we moved back to California where he had a business out there to restart it and try to put our lives together. Right before we moved out there, his he has two children, both alcoholics. His oldest one, his daughter, Sheila, called and uh, said that she had a son out of wedlock. And, I mean, he just went twirling to the top of the roof, and I told him how it felt because I'd been there. And shortly after that, she called and said she's going to put that boy in a, in a foster home and walk the streets because that's the way she'd been raised. Her mother was an alcoholic. Jim was an alcoholic. And I said to him that perhaps that we need to uh, offer her a plane ticket to come back here and help her. Maybe she's crying out for help. So we did. We brought her back to Oklahoma where we were living at the time we got married and moved to Oklahoma at that time and, and she got sober there and she's still sober today she just had 15 years of sobriety and she's married and has another child and she's just doing so extremely well just extremely well she's a marvelous young woman my daughter uh, came to a convention that I was at and just to see me and she uh, heard her story and I, I'm such a coincidence um it was father leo who was talking i had not seen father leo until last night and he's not here so i can't even thank him for that um but he told his story it just cracked me up that she identified with a nun because let me tell you that was not her story um, and she started going to the program shortly thereafter and decided it wasn't for her went back out drank got a call she had tried to commit suicide and there is nothing worse than an alcoholic child trying to commit suicide. It just tears up your whole life, your whole being, your whole sleep, your whole serenity and everything. And I had to do a lot of work on that. I had to do a lot. Of, I had taken an inventory on my motherhood. And I found some really good things I did and I found some really bad things I did. And I also discovered that I lived in the isms, alcoholism and alanonism, and I had to ask for forgiveness. I made amends to everybody that I needed to. And I believe God forgive me. Uh, and I did not go back. Uh, the, let the people of AA take care of her, and uh, she got better and met a young man, and they got pregnant, and then they got married, and then they had my granddaughter, and then she moved with us. <laughs> They're divorced now, and I have a granddaughter that's 14, and no, excuse me, 12. We all moved to California, and um, she had 10 years of sobriety, doing absolutely marvelous. Speaking, I think she spoke with Ken at a place, and uh, your speaker tonight, and sponsoring people, going to meetings, working on conventions. She was doing marvelous. We gave her a 10-year AA birthday party out in the backyard. Tons of people came. It was just, it was glorious. And two weeks later, sober, she tried to kill herself again. I'll tell you, that has taught me that alcoholism is alcoholism, drunk or sober. And I cherish 
every single day of sobriety now, which I just used to think, well, they're sober and they're going to be sober. I cherish it because the natural normal state for an alcoholic is to be drunk. The normal natural state of an Al-Anon is to be eating your butt alive. And I have to stay right here all the time to separate alcoholism from the alcoholic because I hate alcoholism with all my soul. But I love the alcoholic with all my soul. So I have to stay here with y'all to separate the two. And of course she drank. She uh, put three and a half years of sobriety back together and moved to Phoenix, Arizona and was doing lovely. Three and a half years sober doing lovely. She called me one day and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, what? Can you imagine an alcoholic calling you and say, are you sitting down? She said, well, I went over to Vegas last night and got married. I said, to who? I mean, she wasn't even dating anybody that I knew. Well, she, met, she was dating a young man from our hometown that she'd met at Christmas. And I think they'd seen each other two or three times at least, for God's sakes, and talked on the phone a lot. And they'd gotten married. I said, well, are y'all going to stay there in Phoenix? She said, no, we have to get back to Texas before his parole officer finds that he's out of state. So you know what, Tracy, I think I'll talk to you later. I just hung up. And, uh, of course, uh, he was still drinking. And, and, and she called me last year, in January of last year. I was going to be back in Texas, and she was going to be where I was. And she said, I need to tell you something, Mom. I've been drinking. And I said, well, I'm not surprised. And she said, I'm going to be where you are this weekend at the convention. And, and I need to tell you, I have two black eyes and stitches across my face. I've been beat up pretty bad. I've spent the whole night in the emergency room. And, of course, I do what I always do. I call my sponsor. I'm just absolutely nuts with it. And I call my sponsor and talk with her. And, and you know, sometimes she, my sponsor doesn't really understand what's going on. Um, she's not sensitive to some of the things that goes on in my life. <laughs> the first thing she said was, hmm, apples don't fall too far from the trees, do they? And I was just guilt and shame and remorse and all that. I just took every bit of that on, and she started laughing. And then it was like, you know, this is Tracy's life. It's not my life. And yeah, she grew up seeing that. Yeah, she experienced that. But this is she's been she had you know years of sobriety and she has choices. And I've just got to let this child do what this child's got to do. She had a year sober again uh, three weeks ago, and I'm so grateful for her. And it's been really hard sobriety for her, extremely hard. Uh, Jim and I did rail out in California. We were just doing well. We just bought a place in Palm Springs and had a home in L.A. And it, I mean, the sun was shining. And the wind was at our back, and we were sponsoring people and happy and, and doing well. And one day he walked in and he said, uh, I've got something right here that feels funny, and I felt of it. And we went to the emergency room, and he was dead three months later. It was cancer. I went to the business manager uh, to get some things done and realized the business manager had left, and uh, we had been um, apparently embezzled. Um, the, there was Everything was gone. Um, I found myself broke. Uh, I lost my home. I lost, lost both homes. I lost everything. I was standing just, I had nothing. And it's been said here, I, I think it's so incredible. Boy, when one of us is wounded, it is the most glorious thing to see because y'all came and y'all surrounded me and you carried me when I couldn't walk. You buried my husband because I didn't have the money to bury my husband. And there's a lot of pride that can come in sometimes. You know, pride, I think, is one of those evil things in the world. And uh, it was a prideful thing I had to go through. But your love went through that, over that. 
um, you pack me and you move me. Uh, you put me on a plane to take my husband's ashes back and bury them. And you brought me back and got me set up. And, God, you know, how can you say thank you for those things? I don't know how. I don't have a clue. Not a clue. And I've been living in a room with this woman. And, I mean, a little room that I've absolutely just detested from the day I walked in. And uh, I've been there three years. And uh, a couple of months ago, I was approached by... Um, a couple of mentors and they said that they would like to uh, to help me and they put me in a I call it my penthouse apartment for a year uh, and they wanted to do that for me and I said I don't know I'll have to call my sponsor and check this out and I called my sponsor and she read me the page that had been that day one day at a time and it said that uh, God wants to do miracles for us God wants to take care of us and sometimes he has to use human beings to accomplish that and that we should be aware and watch and, and accept the help. And that was the reading that day. So I'm in a penthouse now and uh, for a year, and I'm very, very, very happy. I had no idea how much my stuff meant to me. It was incredible. Right after my husband died, my nephew was crushed, uh, drunk on an oil rig, and right after that, my uh, stepdad died of 20-something years. And right after that, like three months later, my mother died. So in 11 months, I had four deaths, and it was just, I mean, I was just like a told you while ago. I was on a roller coaster for the past three years, just crazy. And coming out on the other side of that, and these marvelous, happy things happened. It was just great. Um, four years ago, uh, four and a half years ago, my son called, and his dad, my cowboy, had drank all these years. And he um, was living in a warehouse on a cot in the back room just to watch like a like a watchdog, and this man paid him a little bit and kept him in his whiskey, but he had was drunk and fell into a fan and cut his arm and had just almost bled to death, and he was in the hospital in, in bad shape, and the man called my son and said, I will not let your dad come back here. You're going to have to come get him and do something with him. I'm through. I can't handle him, and there was nobody else in my husband, I mean my ex-husband's life, nobody, so my son called me, and I said, well, I'll send Tracy. Tracy had 60 days of sobriety at the time, and my husband Jim said, you go back there and twist up your daddy, and he, he bankrolled it and sent her back to Texas. And she twist up her dad, her stepdad, the one who'd raised her, and uh, he went into a, a VA hospital and celebrated four and a half years of sobriety. And, and my son called me a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, he just dropped dead two weeks ago. And so we all went back and um, buried my ex-husband. And I, there's a clubhouse there, and we stayed at that clubhouse. They fed us at that clubhouse. In fact, we had his funeral at that clubhouse. And I was listening to all these people talk about this man that I didn't know who they were talking about. I had no idea who they were talking about. And my daughter talked to his sponsor and said to him, I'm just real curious, why didn't my dad ever work the steps? Why didn't my dad ever take a fourth and fifth step and make amends? And the sponsor said, well, I knew all about his inventory. He didn't need to tell me. I had it. I knew it all because I knew him real well. It was in my head, his head. We didn't need to do that. And just kind of blew it off. And my daughter and I sat and talked about it. And I'll tell you, it hurts me deeply. I was waiting for my ex-husband, whom I at one time adored, to take his fifth step and make his amends to me. I should have been on the top of the list, and I knew this. But, you know, the fact that he didn't do it, he and I never got to sit down and, and clean the slate. There's so many things I wanted to say to him, and, and it was very difficult uh, to, with us, even in his sobriety, to be around each other. All that stuff was still there. 
And I really wanted that to, I wanted that experience. And I won't get it. And, and I'm really sad about that. My brother uh, broke, uh, not my brother broke his neck, my next brother, Jimmy, who raised me after my brother broke his neck. We were real, real close. And when I had my child out of wedlock, he was through with me. And he drank for many, many years. And uh, several year ago, years ago, he, he committed suicide drunk. And it just tore my family up. And I remember the feeling then, you know, he's never going to get sober. There's never going to be amends made. And he and I are never going to square this way. I tried to make amends to him, and he would not have it. And I have just discovered here lately how important it is to clean the slate. And I'm so glad that I cleaned my side of the street with both of these men. I really did. I did the best I could. Uh, we didn't get to sit down and talk about it, but I, I did my part. But there's still that little hurt, you know. I am absolutely okay today. I'm absolutely okay. I had a car wreck a few years ago, and it has uh, messed me up physically. But other than that, I'm fine. I have a big, huge group that I work with. We're real busy. I have people in my life that I absolutely adore. I have more in my life than I deserve. And I know where it comes from. It comes from doing those things that I do not want to do when I don't want to do them and show up here. And then I get to see what's going on. I get to see what's happening in everybody else's life. They're my mirrors. And I, I, without you and your mirror, my mirrors, I don't know what I'd do. You have fed me. You have clothed me. You have clothed my children. You've held them. My daughter and I just can't do it yet, you know. We just can't do it. Um, we are polite and polite with each other, and I hate that. Uh, I hate that. And I know that sobriety does not always bring all the answers that I dreamed that it would. Sobriety doesn't always bring amends that I dreamed that it would. But I am so grateful for five minutes of sobriety. It's so much better than the hell that we all lived in. And I have to constantly look at my part. What am I doing here? What have I put in their life? And I am thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly grateful that God loves me so much that he gives me chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. And that I have learned what my heritage is. And by a friend of mine, I'm closing, my friend Bob White in Texas used to, said this at a, at a conference, and I, he asked me to repeat it when he was very ill. We close every meeting with our with the Lord's Prayer and it starts off with our Father and in there it says the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He said if there's a kingdom and if it's our Father it makes sense that we're the prince and the princesses of the king. So why don't we act like that and treat each other like that. And that day I took that on and I thought yes I am a princess of the king. I should act like one. And the power said he is in these meetings and in this room and we need to feel that power and let it happen. And the glory of course is God. And, and I've I've taken that on as my banner. I am Princess Fanoi. I am a child of the King. And I, my heritage comes from you people. And from sitting here with you through the good, through the bad, through the drunk, through the sober, through my craziness, whatever. It's right here in these rooms. And I am so grateful that y'all let me keep coming. And that I'm a part of you. Thank you very much for my heritage.